Good morning, Risen Hope Church. For those of you who are new here, you're wondering why I'm calling Uncle Andy. Uh, first two years of this church, I was a member here, and uh, it was a joy, a privilege, a highlight of my life uh, before I was sent packing uh, back to where I was initially from. And uh, I told folks there that I'm kind of like that, that odd uncle who just never leaves, who just hangs around and eats the food. That was kind of how I f- functioned here when I was here. Um, so they've called me Uncle Andy. It's not entirely endearing, uh, but, but it's a joy to be called that among my friends and my brothers and sisters here. Um, turn your Bibles to uh, Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be actually in the last section of chapter 5 and in the in first section of chapter 6, you can go there now. Um, I'm here today. Uh, I'll just tell you what it feels like. Um, I'm, I'm stepping in for Tim Shorey. It feels like, uh, I'm at the, the baseball analogy, the, the ace of the team has to miss a start. And so they brought up a junk baller from AAA. And, uh, and they're handing me the ball. What I didn't realize is, okay, you've had two baptisms here. We are already uh, up, up four runs. We have four runs in our favor, and now I'm coming up to pitch. And the guys are just handing me the ball and saying, listen, just don't blow the lead. Don't blow the lead. And we got it. So that's my goal today. It's not a very high goal. I don't want to blow the lead. Um, Galatians. Chapter 5, beginning in verse 25. Apostle Paul writes, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Lord, I pray that you would meet us today through your word. Lord, I add my prayer to the prayer of this congregation for the shootings that have occurred in Buffalo in California this past week, Lord, uh, I pray not only for the victims, I pray for the fears that arise in these times. I pray that you would help us, O oh God, to be agents of peace, ministers of peace in a hurting world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So what did the pandemic do to your spiritual life? It's a question I've been asking myself personally. And in some ways, the pandemic had a good effect on me 
Uh, the shutdown interrupted my busyness and forced me to slow down in a lot of ways. I read a couple of long theology books that I don't know if I'd ever even opened up outside the pandemic. I did a lot of study about getting old because, well, I need to convince myself I'm getting old. As you guys know, the pandemic did a number on churches. Even though we're coming out of the pandemic, things have changed. Live streaming services has been a real gift. But for some folks, it has become kind of a preference. Hey, it's been a crazy week. Let's just stay home and do TV church today. Culturally, there has been a rise in what is called internet spirituality. Not just in the church, but in general. But in the Christian church, internet spirituality is the idea that what I need for my spiritual health, my worship, my community, my teaching, my giving, my service, can all be done on the internet. I can worship with Maverick City or whoever I like. I can get preaching from Kevin DeYoung or whoever I like. I can, I can click a button and serve people. I can click a button and give. I can... I can, uh, I can ally with things that matter to me. I can be part of my own group on the internet where all, we all agree on politics and social issues and all feel a deep, deep sense of connection. All I can do, all I need to do in my spirituality, I can do through the internet. But is that true spirituality? In this passage, we're going to get an unexpected take of what it means to be a truly spiritual person. We're going to find that true spirituality is lived out in real-time person-to-person relationship. True spirituality is by definition lived out in real-time person-to-person relationship. That's what Paul is teaching us here today. There's both a personal and community application here. This morning we're going to walk through this passage. We're going to, we're going to see how this applies to us as individuals. We're going to see how it applies to us as a church and explore some real true life spirituality. We're going to literally walk through verse by verse. So let's look at the first verse. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You see, the way the Bible understands it, the spiritual life isn't something we sort of cultivate from within. The spiritual life is actually given to us. We are dead spiritually. And then... God, through the gospel, makes us alive in Christ. When Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, that's a rhetorical question. His assumption is, if you are in this church and you know Christ, then you live by the Spirit. You are not dead in your sins. The great central message of Paul's letter to the Galatians is this very point. It tells us where our spirituality comes from. Look back with me in chapter 2 of the same letter, Galatians 20, Galatians 2, in verse 20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God. Notice that none of that comes from within you. It all comes from God. But at the same time, we're called to live it out. This isn't just sort of a benign spiritual presence that I enjoy. Both Galatians 2 and the passage we're looking at talks about a life lived on the basis of what God has done. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, in other words, the way I live my life, the, the choices I make, the life I choose to make, I live according to what God has done in me. Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, what? It requires something. Let us also walk by the Spirit. To be spiritual is to be active and moving in a way that's consistent with what God has done in us. This automatically separates Christian spirituality from other spiritualities where a person follows an inner light or is aware of the presence of divinity in the cosmos or follows a particular teaching that moves them up to higher levels of spirituality. God in Christ by His Spirit has taken up the place of Lordship in our lives. You are either a Christian or not. You are either one who lives by the Spirit or not. You are either one who has the life of God or not. Because God reaches into your life and takes your dead soul and brings it alive in a miraculous work of regeneration. Because of that, we walk in the direction He is leading us. New International Version translate this in a, in a great way let us keep in step with the Spirit the Spirit is moving are we keeping in step with where he is moving in our lives so where is the Spirit leading to Paul doesn't leave us with just well I think it's kinda going here I don't know I'm just kinda waiting to see where God's gonna go no Paul says no there is a direction and you can follow it Galatians 5 26 let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That sounds kind of odd. That kind of tells me, okay, you're just telling me to walk, and then you're putting all these things in front of me. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. What are you saying, Paul? What Paul's saying is, guess what? If you follow the Holy Spirit, He will always lead you into messy relationships was talking to someone this week about uh, a situation they're facing in their family, extended family, and they were asking the question, do you think I need to put boundaries up in this relationship? And I said, well, not if you're a Christian. 
Because God doesn't call us to put boundaries up. God calls us to love wisely. God calls us to, to, to move into messy relationships, not to be hurt because we must be wise. We need to recognize that we have responsibility to not let other people distract us from what God has for us, but we don't do that by avoiding people or putting up walls. We're called to move toward people and their messiness, and people are always moving toward us and our messiness as well. I just finished a devotional book I always wanted to read. It's by a, uh, a writer, Thomas Akempis, and it's called The Imitation of Christ. It's a book that was written in the 1500s, and I just always saw it on my shelf. I thought, I should probably check that out. So I pulled it out. Uh, Thomas was a medieval monk who was known for his spiritual disciplines. He was a big fan. What, what, throughout the book, he's talking about longing to leave this dusty, sinful earth and be in communion with Jesus. And we should live that way now. We should, we should live apart from the world and as much attuned to Jesus as we can be. And part of that is a very good idea. Interestingly, though Thomas was venerated, he was never canonized as a saint. According to the official story, several years after he died, people dug up his coffin to collect relics, which is what you would do if that was person was meant to be a saint. But when they opened the coffin, they found scratches on the inside of the coffin. Apparently, Thomas was not as intent on meeting with Jesus as he said he was. Anyway, he was known as a man who liked books and quiet corners all the days of his 91-year-old life. And you get that in the imitation of Christ. The message of the book is that spiritual life is best lived by withdrawing to intimate fellowship with God. Interaction with others is, well, maybe it's necessary, but it drains us spiritually and distracts us from the spiritual life that we are really meant to live. Frankly, I love his take on that. That fits my personality exactly. I, I love being alone. I love being able to sort of withdraw. Catch me this afternoon. Don't come over to my house and knock on my door. I will not be a nice person to you. Because I love, and you're going to test me on that, I know. So I have a line of people at my door waiting to come in. You're all welcome. Okay, you're all welcome today. But if you really want to know my heart, not where I tend to roll. I love being alone. I love cultivating a a relationship with God alone where I control what I think about, what I control the environment. But that's not true spirituality. Interaction with others is necessary, but it's also draining for us. But that's what God intends. The deep work of the Spirit in us is a work that by definition motivates us to move away from quiet corners into the places and spaces occupied by other sinners. 
That's the true imitation of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what he did? He came down from perfect communion with the Father in glory to be with sinners like us. Isn't that how he spent his entire life? You can understand why Jesus occasionally just needed to get away up into the mountains to pray because I'm sure in his, in his human flesh, he was like, I am so tired of these people. You have to go. And, but, but in his divinity, in who he was, he knew that's where spirituality was. It's among God's people. So when the Spirit leads us toward other people, of course it's going to get complicated and messy. And that's what Paul is doing. He is assuming the messiness of relationships and he's coaching us up for it. This isn't just a list of three random rules not to break. Don't be conceited, don't provoke other people, don't envy. Those are all good things, but that's not just a random list. The common theme in all three of those things is our tendency to do one of two things with other people. And see if you can map onto this. We will tend to treat people as means to what we want to get. Or we will tend to treat people as obstacles in the way of what we want to get. That's the natural tendency, isn't it? Sometimes we're doing that every day. Who is a means to what I want to get? I'll move toward them, but not for their sake, but for my own. Who is an obstacle to what I want to get? How can I minimize their participation in my life? Example from high school. Um, I craved popularity in high school. I didn't have it. I craved it. And because of that, I put people into two boxes. Those who could help me be more popular, who I tended to seek out and find ways to cultivate relationships, and those who stood in the way of my popularity, who if I, were, if I were connected to them, the popular people wouldn't connect with me. So I tend to want to get away from the people who would make me less popular to move toward people who were popular. And I lived my life that way. I was driven that way. This can happen even in something like parenting. Let's, tend, let's be real. We tend to be happy with our kids when they flow with our plans and behave in a way that makes people think, well, you're really good parents. That's what we, how we relate to our kids. That's when we're happiest with our kids. We tend to not be so happy with our kids when they exercise, I would say this way, exercise their own leadership initiative in a way that conflicts with our leadership initiative. Kids will tend to do that at three weeks old as a baby, at three years old as a toddler, at 13 years old as a preteen. That's when we have trouble, isn't it? When they don't cooperate with our agenda. So Paul is saying, don't go into relationships with your own agenda. Don't go into relationships as if it's about what you get from them. There's a whole other ethic that takes us into relationships. You've heard the old saying, I love my church, it's just the people I can't stand. Walking by the Spirit is a call to relate to others with a whole different agenda than we naturally bring. 
God gathers people into churches not because he wants to create a bunch of people who just love all the same things. He mixes it up. He brings people in from all different places because he wants us to learn how to be truly spiritual people. Chapter 6, verse 1. There is no paragraph break. There's no chapter break in, in the New Testament. This is right flowing from this counsel to be a spiritual person. And he says this. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, connecting to what he just said, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Brothers, Paul starts with, let he, Paul wants us to know that to walk by the Spirit is to do it as members of God's family. If we are spiritually alive in Christ and we are part of Christ's family, I am truly your uncle in some sense. I don't know how, but that is what I am. Spirituality isn't simply an individual experience. It's a life lived in a spiritual family. And so our spirituality isn't just how we are relating to God. Spirituality is inherently communal. Healthy spirituality cannot be cultivated outside of community. I love the, the uh, there's a couple of wonderful expressions here today. Baptism, identifying not just with Christ but with His church. That's what baptism is. It is saying, I don't, I don't want to just simply be baptized to be identified with Jesus I want to be baptized with, to be identified with his body. If his body is mistreated, I want to be mistreated like his body. If his body is tested, I want to be treated in that test. I want to be identified with the body. We cannot live an individual spirituality that is so akin to us as American. We need the brotherhood and the brotherhood needs us. Sometimes, let's use small groups for example. Sometimes smoke, folks in our church will tell me, you know, I just don't think small group is helping me. I get it, I get the point, but I just don't think it's really meeting my needs. That's understandable. I've been in small groups now continually for over four decades. So I know my small groups. I've been in some groups that I wished I could leave, but the problem was I was leading them. <laughs> if I had chosen to attend based on how helpful they are for me, I would have ejected from small groups years ago. That's not why I go. As you fight the overwhelming desire just to hit the chill button rather than go out on your, to your small group the next time it meets, does that thought to you come to your mind? Maybe God wants me there not because I need what the group provides for me, but the group needs what I bring. The group is... I'm necessary to the group because I have grace that the group needs. When I contribute to my small group, a confession, a thought about a passage of scripture, a question about a topic, an encouragement to somebody, a prayer, 
what I find is that God actually meets me. That's a very important point. We move toward relationship not to get but to give. And we'll see how Paul particularly weighs that out in a second. Paul gives us one key way that true spirituality is proved. And that's when our brothers are caught in transgression. That's what he says. If anyone is caught in any transgression, caught in transgression, the, the language there is trapped or ensnared. This isn't a situation where someone is, in a, is rebellious in a long-term pattern of sin um, and is unrepentant. Long-term patterns of unrepentant sin require relationship, but it looks different. That is intervention. That is seeking out. That's a process of correction and potentially appeal and potentially church discipline. God has provided for those who are intentionally, habitually, overtly disobeying Him. He has a way of dealing with that. But there's another category of people. That's somebody who is walking along fine and then stumbles. Maybe they have had 12 months of sobriety and then they stumble. Maybe they have been working on their marriage conflicts and have had some good success and then they erupt. Maybe they have had trouble keeping a job because they tend to not work well under people and they find another job and they do the same thing. There, there are times where we just stumble. We're trying to walk with Christ and we stumble. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's someone from like verse 25, 525, someone who's seeking to walk by the Spirit but stumbles in sin and gets caught in sin along the way. We know what Paul's talking about, don't we? Who here has never stumbled? Who here has not stumbled this week? Who here has never had the experience where you thought you were doing fine spiritually, then a situation came up that was perfectly attuned to your weakness, and then you fell into it? That's a common experience for believers. At any point in time in the church, there are people who are stumbling. But we don't all stumble at the same time, praise God. Sometimes we're weak, but somewhere nearby there's a brother or sister who is spiritual, as Paul says, who is strong. You who are spiritual. And those who are not stumbling at the present are called to minister to those who are. If you're in one of those times when you're spiritually strong, you can be part of God's restoration project even if you've never walked through what that person has dealt with. So verse 6-2, we see how. Bear with another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The key word here is bear. The Greek there is the word bastazo. This is not a fancy drink at the local coffee shop. It's a verb. It's meant to lift up or to raise or to bear up or to carry or to endure or to sustain with somebody. It's not tolerant or patient. There's another word that you'll see translated in the, in the, in the Scriptures um, as bear, but it's a different Greek word. In Colossians 3, you'll see bear with one another. That has to do with being patient. That has to do with the fact that you just got to not 
get all worked up about other people's problems. That's a patience word. This is a different word. Bastazo uh, means to come alongside somebody and help them carry it. Doesn't mean take it off of them. We'll see in a, in a, in a moment how that doesn't work. It means, though, that we're called to come alongside and help somebody with their burden. We contribute our effort to their effort. We don't, we can't do it ourselves. We can't do it for people, but we can help them as they try. Let me get an illustration that's very relevant for me. If you ever tried to, to move like a, a, a queen or king-size mattress, like upstairs, you ever tried to do that by yourself? and tried to yank on those little handles that have no apparent purpose because the first thing, the first yank, they just pull out. You're like, I'm thinking, why don't you put like decent handles on this thing? Well, it's impossible, right? We can't muscle that baby up all by ourselves. We can't grab it at the top and pull it because there's nothing to hang on to it. We can't push it from the bottom by ourselves because it gets stuck on the step and just starts to crumple and then it pushes us back down the stairs. I've done it, trust me, this is what I've done. I've tried it myself, it doesn't work. I can barely do a, a single mattress. The idea is, what if you're up at the top and you're kind of helping it get up the stairs, but there's somebody down below with it on their shoulder and pushing it up and you're doing it together. That's the picture. Putting my shoulder under something that you can't carry by yourself and helping you to get it where it needs to go. To get the full picture of this, you also look at Romans 15, 1, where Paul says, we who are strong, this is a parallel language, have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Same word. Bear with the failings bastazo. In other words, they, they take these two passages together. You see there are strong believers and there are weak believers at any one time. Weakness can come through immaturity, or lack of knowledge, or a difficult season of life, or the ensnaring of sin. We all have weaknesses, we all struggle, we all battle with sin. We are all going to be weak at one time. We are not Jedi Knights, we are not able to get to the place where we just employ the force and everything's cool. None of us will ever reach Yoda status. We will always have some burden a weakness or a struggle where we need others. Bastazo ministry, this bearing with ministry, is not a gift or a role in the church. We have deacons to serve people. We have small group leaders. We have people who are gifted and with service gifts. This is not a gift. It's a way we express love. The second part of that passage says, that verse says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. How does this work? What does it mean to fulfill the law of Christ? Paul's already answered for that, us for that in, earlier in chapter 5 when he says, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's how we fulfill the law. We love others. So we need to recognize a couple of things. We are simultaneously strong spiritually but we are susceptible to weakness spiritually and when we are strong and aware that we're strong that means God wants us to help people who are weak and when we are weak we need to recognize we cannot do it alone 
we need the help of others. I have, my, my interesting thing, my experience is people, people don't often des- describe themselves as weak or needy. If, as one, one of my counseling professors said one time, he said, when people talk about their problems, they're never actually in their problems. It's always something else they're dealing with. They never see themselves, well, no, I'm actually part of the problem. One of the hardest things to do in your problems is to realize the part you play in your problems. But unless we realize that, we don't see our true need, and therefore we just think if somebody fixes our circumstances, problems are solved. But we are part of our circumstances, and the way we respond is a big issue in the kind of burden that we need help with. How many of you would find yourself as an easy person, for example? How, how, how many of you would describe yourself, uh, yeah, I'm a burden to other people. That's what my, it's my ministry. If I met you at my small group, how would you introduce yourself? Would you say, hey, listen, I'm the group problem here. You want to know, that's my job. I'm the group problem. I'm astonishingly self-absorbed, I'm hypocritical, I'm stubborn, I'm insensitive to other people, and I love to dominate conversations with my outlandish opinions. That's what I do, and I never bring snacks. That's, we wouldn't describe ourselves that way, but there's a chance, certainly there's a chance in my small group where at times I'm understood that way. My wife reminds me, you know what, you talked an awful lot in that small group. And I wasn't leading it. When I lead it, it's actually worse. But it's important to recognize that as we ask God for grace for other people, there are other people asking God's grace to deal with us. We are always in need of help from God and from others. We need people to help us bear our burdens. Verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, Paul is applying this to heart. We've already gone there. If you think you're something when you are nothing, you deceive yourself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not with his neighbor. This is not a way to say, listen, I've tested myself. I'm good. Problem's obviously with you. That's not the way it works. To love others rightly, we need a little biblical self-awareness. Paul's driving at this idea. We tend to have one standard of measure for ourselves, and that tends to have a whole lot of a patience attached to it. And we have another standard of measure for other people, and that standard of measurement is, say, a little bit more exacting. When we don't do something that is right or we do something that is wrong, We tend to have a lot of explanations for why it was. When other people do something wrong to us, we don't allow for explanations. We only allow for them to own what they've done to us. We have a lot of cushy grace for ourselves and not a lot of cushy grace for other people. What Paul is saying in verse 3 is we need to flip that around. The graciousness, the the, the, the big-heartedness, the willingness to overlook, the willingness to not even consider an affront, the willingness to sort of say, you know what, I know you didn't mean it, no problem, we're good, um, not just on a surface level, but really take that to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm not going to be offended over this, the willingness to see the other person's perspective, not just my own, 
the willingness to recognize that, that other people, people may not have gotten to a place where they see what God wants them to ultimately see, but I can be patient with that. We need to extend that to other people and with ourselves be a little more challenging, a little more questioning of our motivations, a little more questioning of what really did happen, what was my contribution. If, if, I, if I'm in a situation with someone and I have a really good clear idea of what they've done wrong but not much of an idea of what I've done wrong, Paul's saying you've got to flip that around. You've got to flip that around. You need to have a far more awareness of your contribution than their contribution if you're going to love others. Here's a very practical way of doing this. I've learned that the battle with temptation, if I'm observing it in somebody, can sometimes look a lot like sin. So I can see somebody do something and I can say, oh, that's sin. But I've learned over time that a lot of times, no, if you watch what happened in their heart, they're struggling, they're fighting, they're, they're trying to resist. They, they uh, you know, in your marriage, you say something and it obviously hits your spouse the wrong way and they don't immediately come back with what you hope they come back with. Maybe they just bite their lip. You want to say, you're sinning against me, you're judging me, you're, you're not listening to what I'm saying. Why don't we say, well, maybe you're just, maybe you're fighting sin. Maybe you have a bunch of temptations coming up and you're trying not to act on them. I think if we have a healthy perspective that we all battle temptation, but battling temptation is not falling into sin. It's not a commitment to sin. We can help one another because we recognize, I'm going to stand with you in your battle. Even though the battle can look like it's hard and looks like maybe you're struggling, I want to help you with your battle. If we're going to help people bear their burdens, we need to help, we need to see them who they are in light of who they are underneath all their problems. So two things to keep in mind, we're moving toward a close. Number one, the church is not a burden-free zone. This is where Paul takes us in verse 5. For each will have to bear his own load. We don't invite people to the church and say, leave your burdens behind. We are now in a burden-free zone. Nobody here has problems. Bestazo can't be about the eradication of burdens in our midst. There are whole churches and denominations that consider weakness and failure to be a sign that a person is not truly a Christian. Let's not be that way. Let's see the fight against sin as inherently a Christian thing to do. And let's not make it our job to fix other people. Here's what I've learned, folks. You and I are not fixable. We are changeable, but we are not fixable. God is at work changing us. It is not my job as a pastor, as a friend, as an older brother, as a, as a spouse, as a parent. It is not my job to fix you. It's my job to be part of what God is doing in changing you in a way that best fits your need. And number two, the church is a place where the deepest burden gets the best remedy. If you're here today and you're weighed down by problems and burdens in life, there is good news you must hear 
in your burdens. The deepest burden you carry can be taken away from you. I heard a story about a spiritual journey yesterday by a brother in this church named Phil. Just heard two more stories this morning about a God who removes burdens. His story was an overwhelming life burden, but an encounter with the one person who identified the true burden he had that he could not overcome, the burden of his sin against the God who makes all the difference in life. You guys have heard it. We need to be telling our redemption stories to one another to remind each other that God is at work and He has taken our main burden. How do we know God has come to take our burden? Well, let me take you here. John 19.17 He says this, Carrying His own cross, He went out to the place of the skull, Golgotha. That word carrying is the word bastazo. That reference is to Jesus. Jesus bore, as, as John says, his own cross. And frankly, brothers and sisters, that's a grotesque choice of words. Jesus bore his own cross. Why is that grotesque? Because that wasn't his cross to bear. That was our cross to bear. We're supposed to be carrying that cross. It belongs on our backs. But Jesus Christ came and didn't just come alongside to help us carry it. No. He took it from us and He carried it up the hill Himself where He died for our sins to free us from the burden that we might have the power of God at work making us spiritual people who then turn around and carry the burdens of others. That's the call. Do you have burdens here today? Do you have weaknesses? Do you have struggles? Is it not Jesus who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me. Now let me give you my burden. I've taken your, I've taken your burden. Now let me give you my burden. Learn from me. I am gentle and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The burdens we have, they're real, but in eternal perspective, they're light and they're momentary. One day, they will be gone. I'll close with a, an illustration um, story. Uh, and, it's, and, and the story, the point of the story is that I just want to help you see why this is important for you in your church. In, um, back in the 1990s, my father-in-law had uh, tickets to Eagles, season tickets to Eagles games at the vet. And uh, so once or twice a year, I was able to go to see an Eagles game. Um, uh, you know, this is back during the Reggie years and uh, the Randall years. It's a great time to go. Um, 
But there was one year, uh, we would go and we'd stay till the end of the game. Doesn't matter what kind of weather it was, doesn't matter how bad the score was, we'd stay till the end. So one year we were there, it was the year they weren't doing well. I think they probably had, you know, won four games and lost eight or whatever. And so we're there and we're just there. And it was cold and it was nasty and the, it's a surly crowd. But usually we had around us the same people because the season tickets sort of had the same people around. But there was a guy who apparently had gotten a ticket from uh, the season ticket holder who was right in front of me who, uh, who was a really big dude. I'd never met I'd never seen him before. And so he's there. He's a big dude. Um, uh, and so throughout the game, I noticed he kept turning and looking at me, like right behind him. And I was, that was interesting. And uh, let me just say this. Paul Kostikov's a big dude. But he's a happy, joyful dude. Imagine Paul really surly. You get an idea of this guy in front of me. So he's there and he's with his girlfriend, apparently girlfriend. So he's there and he keeps looking back at me and staring at me. Like, and we're in, the, we're in the fourth quarter now and it's really bad and we're not going anywhere. And I'm in my, I'm in my parka and uh, I'm just sitting going, I'm not sure what's going on. I'm trying to see, am I kicking him? Am I, am I knees in his back? I'm not touching him. But he just keeps looking back at me with this really angry scowl. And then he'd, you know, lean over to his girlfriend and he would just, and he'd point back at me. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And so, and so one point he gets up and he turns and stands over me and just goes, like that. And I'm going, okay. I, I don't think this is included in the ticket price. Um, so he sits down, and I'm wondering what's going on. I'm th- I start thinking about my, my options. And I think, maybe the best options is if I just wail on him. Um, because if you're at the vet at that time, the yoga guards were all around. So if you got into a fight, they would jump in. So I thought, I don't know what this guy's going to do, but if I hit him first, they may get involved before he's able to really hit me back. And, but I realized, okay, you know, pastor provoking f- fight in the stands for no apparent reason. Not a good, not a good news headline, so I thought I'll just junk that. So then I thought, okay, the best thing I can do is I can just get back and I'll just get myself in rope-a-dope category and I'll just get like this. And so I basically, I sat like this, like ready to take a punch because he kept looking back at me. And then out of nowhere, this peanut comes flying and pops him on his head. And he looks back, and there's these guys like, like nine, nine seats down and three rows back who are just screaming, laughing. And, uh, and, he, and he, he says, and apparently he knows them, hey, did you just throw that? And the guy's going, yeah, man, we've been hitting you with peanuts all game. You never knew it. And he's like, oh, man, I was going to kill this guy. <laughs> and I, you know. It's one of those things where they don't train you in responses to that. Like, well, thanks. Thanks for not killing me. The point is this. We were all Eagles fans. We were all facing the game. Just like you. We were all here for the same purpose. We were all facing the same direction. We all had the same interests. But nobody around knew I had a burden. 
I sat there during that game among the fans with a burden that nobody knew. And what I want to leave you as a church with is this. There are people here today who have burdens you know not of. Maybe they didn't have them last week. Tim didn't have a burden like he has now two weeks ago. Now he does and we pray for him. There are other burdens here. Let us be a church that is truly spiritual, attentive not just to the game, but to the people at the game who have burdens and don't know where to take them. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, as we travel through this journey of life, we are to help men and women by a word, a word of encouragement, a word of cheer, perhaps a word of rebuke, but a word that will remind them that they are under God, that if they are in Christ, they are precious to Him. We all need to be reminded of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I know my brothers and sisters here, my friends here, Lord, I know they do this. This is not a message of correction. Tim didn't ask me to preach because this is a concern. Lord, this is for me as well. My preferences to move away from burdens, my preferences to fix burdens so they don't affect me, my, my lack of awareness of the burdens that are around me. Lord, I'm just thinking about the woman that I has just had a recurrence of cancer in our church and just shooting her an email saying, I'm praying for you, and then meeting her at a prayer meeting a couple days later and pouring out her heart, and, but also doing it in faith. Lord, I walked away from that conversation thinking, I don't understand faith. I don't understand faith in life, what you just shared with me. I don't understand how she can find joy. And as much as I wanted to meet her burden, she met mine. I pray for that kind of fellowship here. Lord, not, not the fixers and the needers, but a bunch of needy people who are growing and following Jesus living life by the Spirit, learning how to care for one another. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.